0: Weirdos, weirdos,
1: Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome to the Politics Guys, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. It's always fun doing the show with you, and we're going to start this week on uh, the story of uh, Bostock versus uh, Clayton County. But before we do that, we have this message. So Ken, this week, the court uh, took up Bostock v Clayton County, the Supreme Court did. And what it's really centering on is the 1964 Act Civil Rights Act passed by Congress. And the 1964 Civil Rights Act is designed. It was designed. It was it was groundbreaking because it was designed to prevent discrimination in hiring of private employment decisions. I think one of the things that a lot of um, citizens, a lot of listeners, might not recognize is when you think about a lot of your civil liberties and your civil rights, those are actually protections that are coming in terms of governmental interference. And what was kind of groundbreaking in many ways about the 1964 Civil Rights Act was that it was uh, extending, if you will, those protections uh, to the private sphere, in this case, into employment decisions. Uh, And so this included, really importantly for the time, both race and sex. You couldn't be denied uh, employment on the basis of whether you're a man or a woman, uh, or uh, or on the basis of, uh, of your race. And I think that a lot of people are this week have been really kind of rightfully, I'm going to say, as kind of my libertarian-leaning direction uh, suggests, uh, applauding it because it ends a form of discrimination. Um, Yet, there is still a a question about this, because what happens to make this work is that the Supreme Court really had to kind of evolve its understanding of the term sex uh, in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, So at the time Congress was passing the act, it is it is clearly not likely that sex was intended to include um, gender identity or sexual orientation. Uh, But the court majority argued, uh, Ken, that, quote, the straightforward application of Title VII's terms interpreted in accord with their ordinary public meaning at the time of their enactment resolves these cases. End quote. Uh, The minority disagreed. They state, quote, there is only one word for what the court has done today legislation the document that the court releases in the form of a judicial opinion interpreting a statute but that is deceptive in quote they go on to note that neither sexual orientation nor gender identity appears on that list and that for 45 years congress has introduced legislation to add sexual orientation meaning that congress clearly did not see uh, title 7 as including it originally and yet have continued to fail so i want to start in terms of the law here what do you think Kent? is this is this court trying to do what it seems to be morally good regardless of the law? Are they kind of filling in for the deficiencies of Congress? Uh, or do you think this this is the right ruling just on legal grounds?
0: Well, it's, uh, there's so many things I could say about this case. I think it's the right ruling um, on legal grounds but not at all on the same legal grounds that um, the court decided in the Gorsuch opinion. I, I don't agree with the Gorsuch opinion. Or so you disagree with the majority
1: a... opinion, but you agree with the outcome. So you'd be a concurrence, effectively. Yes,
0: yes I would have, you know, and, I, and I, I've got to say, I believe that the four democratic justices who joined the Gorsuch opinion, um, they, none of them wrote any concurrences, but I don't believe any of them agreed with the methodology and the opinion, but I think they just thought it was more important. To um, have a a six justice um, majority opinion, as opposed to a split decision, as opposed to split decision, yeah, that they that they went along with it. But it it seems to me like a pretty, um, you know, it's 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 a form of conservative judicial activism of of the type that I really do not um, appreciate. Um, And methodologically, that is, although in this case it reaches, uh, I think, a liberal result that um, I would have rather seen. Uh, Reached through um, uh, more liberal constitutional interpretive methods.
1: So, what would have been, I, I want to start there then. Uh, what would have been your argument for, uh, and again, kind of the crux of the legality here is, you know, Congress passes the law that refers to sex, has not been able to pass a law that includes either gender identity or uh, sexual orientation. So, what's, what's, yeah. what would be the proper mechanism? for understanding okay, well, how that, that uh, statute uh, applies to, why don't we just start with uh, yeah. sexual orientation?
0: Right. Do you mind if I give a somewhat longish answer to that question? (laughs) Sure. Go ahead. And if I get bored, (laughs) I'll just say so, and then I'll I'll interrupt you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I usually try (laughs) to keep it terse, but I want to explain a little more about what I don't like about the Gorsuch opinion and why I called it conservative judicial activism before I get to um, uh, what I think would have been a better way to do it. So, um, you know, I think the the textualist method that uh, Justice Scalia really pioneered, along with some other judges of the 1980s, like Judge Frank Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit. Um, Judge Bork, to some extent. Um, That that, that method, I think, is a method of um, conservative judicial activism that was crafted with a very result-oriented purpose. The the idea was that the Congresses from the 1930s up to the 1970s and 80s were mostly run by liberal Democrats, and, and most of the legislation that was enacted from the 1930s to the 1980s was liberal democratic legislation. And, um, and, it, it, and the, the people who drafted it understood what what, what they meant by it. Um, now, I think when the textualists came in during the Reagan administration in the 80s, and that became a big judicial movement, the very purpose of textualism was to sever text, reading plain language of text from trying to understand what, what Congress actually meant, um, for the purpose of interpreting statutes in ways that are different than what Congress actually meant. I think that's literally what textualism was about, and and I think it's a it's a despicable methodology. Now, I think I can ask you a question about that before you keep going forward, because
1: you know one of the things that um, that has long been kind of a bugaboo on the left was kind of the idea that you should understand, say, the Constitution in terms of original intent, and that that is in fact the uh, the method that one ought to use for uh, congressional actions as well, and that was often met with resistance historically. Uh, uh, from uh, from the left. So, but it seems like in this case, you would be more sympathetic to an originalist. Am I, am I understanding that? No, correct? no,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm not for originalism or textualism. I don't like either of those methods, but mm. I, 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 think, I think they have different problems, right? Te- textualism is very um, anti-originalist, but it has this different problem that I think it, the, the purpose of textualism is to interpret statutes the way they weren't intended. Right, so it's a it's a method that's very much saying we don't care about congressional intent, we don't care what the Congress actually meant, we only care about the literal meaning of the words that they used, and and if that's different than what they intended, we need to go with what they said, not with what they meant. And and I do believe that was crafted for the purpose of nullifying a lot of the work that Congress did from the 30s to the 80s. And I believe that what what Gorsuch did in the majority opinion is just a textbook example of that, because it, I think of course you're right that the Congress in 1964 wasn't thinking about sexual orientation discrimination. Um, They did use language that if you read it very literally and rip it from context, um, does discriminate based on sex. They they prohibit discrimination based on sex. So if, if an employer takes an adverse action against somebody because that employee is male and is dating other males, um, but they wouldn't take an adverse um, uh, employment action against a female who was dating males. Well, then, quite literally, they have discriminated based on sex. So, if you if you if you sever the the literal meaning of the language from the um, actual intent or understanding of the Congress that enacted it, which is what I claim textualism always does, um, then then Gorsuch is doing textualism in the ordinary conservative activist way. And he's giving a correct interpretation of the literal language of the text, which you know, because he's not looking at what they actually meant, and th- and that's what textualism does. Now, I think originalism, um, which is really to some extent what the Kavanaugh opinion here argues for, mm-hmm. um, you know, Kavanaugh tried to argue that we should try to understand um, the intent of Congress, the, the intent of Congress, right? Not not what the words um, mean literally, but what the Congress that enacted them intended them to mean, and that's not a textualist approach, right? If you're gonna if you're no. gonna privilege um, the, what they meant rather than what they said, then that's an intention, we'd probably call that an intentionalist approach, but you could call it an originalist approach. But I don't really like that so much either. Um, and and I, what, what, what I think what liberal interpreters tend to like best um, are forms of interpretation that are sometimes called dynamic statutory interpretation, um, or they're sometimes called ethical statutory interpretation, um, that just as Oliver Wendell Holmes 100 years ago called the, the living constitution, mm-hmm. and you can apply that to statutes as well where you think about um, what are the broad principles that were intended um, by these legal texts, and um, how, do we, how do we apply those, those first principles to contemporary applications? And so I think if you think about the, the first principles in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as being about um, making it impermissible um, for, to, for employers to discriminate um, uh, in employment decisions in ways that we would consider to be um, prejudice, or bias, or animus, or just improper bases, um, then uh, you know we could say we had some evolution in understanding about whether that first principle um, applies to discrimination based on sexual orientation, um, but that the first principle that they enacted in 1964, they, they may not have thought that that would apply to sexual orientation discrimination, but we now understand today that sexual orientation discrimination isn't that different than race discrimination or sex discrimination or other kinds of discrimination. And so uh, applying that first principle to our contemporary understandings and to this contemporary application, I think that's a bona fide, um, what I would consider a bona fide liberal form of interpretation What well, can I that ask I you though, into.
1: on that, yeah. because, <clears throat> because what you've decried, and you've done this on the show a number of times, and I, I don't think we've ever had a chance to kind of push on it, was what you call, and you've said it here again, you know, kind of conservative activism. Uh, right that they that they're using this to uh you know achieve a specific kind of outcome, but of course what what you've just described there is also a form of activism in the sense that you have to uh, interpret the intent uh of Congress as principle for what they've done and then apply that principle into a uh into a situation in which the the Congress uh clearly would not have uh, made an I mean you're effectively creating legislation from a principle that you think is embedded in a in a piece of legislation that does not contain that actual particular outcome. I mean, isn't that just a different kind of activism?
0: Yeah, I, I accept the allegation. I think it is. <laughs> okay. um, so I, I don't, I don't uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think it's inevitable, right? Um, uh, now, you, you could do the kind of thing that Kavanaugh argues for in his concurrence and say that what we're really trying to figure out is... Um, what what did that Congress at that time mean? What kind of specific meaning did they did they mean? What was their specific understanding? And and I think that's the most minimalist um, way to look at this. That's the least activist way to look at it. But but I, I but think you don't like um, that, of
1: course. I can yeah. yeah, I
0: don't like it as much. I mean I don't I don't dislike it as much as I dislike what what the methodology that Gorsuch used. Okay. Um because because I think the, the me- methodology that Gorsuch used is really to purposely and perversely try not to try to interpret statutes against their actual intended meaning or their actual intended understanding, um, and I think that's kind of the hallmark of, of conservative judicial activism. Now, I will own um, the idea that what I'm advocating is liberal judicial activism. Okay. I, I'm not going <laughs> to deny it, right? But what I'm saying is that I think it's a it's a better uh, it serves society better um, to try to to try to for courts to try to figure out um, what 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 are the principles um, what 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 are the best versions of principles. That Congress actually enacted, and and how would we apply that to contemporary situations? If I if I give one example, if you think about Brown versus Board of Education, which is a case that most people like nowadays, right? The case that the desegregated schools, um, you know, that, that's that's based on the idea that. Um, the the equal protection principle in the Constitution means that the government can't classify people uh, based on their race and can't generally can't treat uh, minorities worse than white people because of their race or differently from white people because of their race. But but yet we know that at the time of the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment, there were plenty of segregated schools in the country, and the and the 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 the, the, the people that ratified the Fourteenth Amendment didn't think that that changed because the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified. It didn't changed during the whole 19th century or early 20th century. Um, But what I would say is that Brown is a correct decision despite that, because even if the framers and ratifiers didn't uh, specifically intend the 14th Amendment or understand the 14th Amendment to desegregate public schools, um, I think they laid down a principle of equality that rightly understood um, does require desegregation of public schools. So I think that's an example of, of what I'm talking about. I think that's a correct kind of interpretation, but I'll, I'll own the fact that it's, a, it's an activist form of interpretation.
1: What about the critics who's going to argue then, uh, you know, and, and this, is, this, this is kind of a common one, is to say, well, look, well, what, once you've kind of owned, you have the liberal conservative activist, uh, you know, the liberal and the conservative activist, uh, what you this ceases to be about law and just uh, becomes all about outcomes, right? Uh, so you're going to want to be, you know, if, you, if you think that conservative principles are uh, more important, you're going to end up taking a conservative activist point of view. And if you think that these liberal principles are more important, you're going to take a, a form of understanding the law that uh, allows for a liberal activist to move forward. And really, therefore, it, it's not about the law at all, uh, but really just, uh, it, it's kind of a post facto legislative uh, battle in an unelected body.
0: Yeah, okay. I, I get that um complaint, but I, the reason I don't agree with it is um one, I think that the 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 two types of activism I described, I don't think they're as symmetric as as how you described them. Okay. Because I think I think the, the conservative activism, particularly through textualism, is is literally about trying to interpret statutes um against what the uh, uh legislature actually intended. Um whereas I think the um the liberal kind of activism is trying to figure out um, the the core principles that the legislature actually intended and and apply them um, in ways that are that are modernized. So I think I think the liberal activism is more sympathetic to what the original legislatures were trying to accomplish, whereas the conservative activism is um, you know really working against what the original legislatures were trying to accomplish. And so I, I think they're different. Um, but the other thing I would say about this, particularly in statutory interpretation, is. You know that, that um, very frequently, and I think I do think the Bostock case is a good example of this, um, because because there's um, so many anti-democratic uh, uh, um, roadblocks built into our um, legislative process that you're often going to see situations, and I think this is one of them, where you know lo- strong popular opinion, it's not that close. Um, actually favors the result that was reached in the Bostock case, mm-hmm. um, but yet there, but yet there are um, uh, impediments because of things like the filibuster rule in the Senate um, for 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 Congress being able to um, keep up with public opinion. And so, so because of that, when when the court um, updates something like this, um, and you know, I would again accept that it's activist and it's an update of of a law. Um, you know, I think what they're really doing is is keeping the law in step with society in ways that are actually more democratic um, than some of the processes that are available in the legislature. And, and the legislature, of course, if, if they had the votes to overrule a decision like this, they could. It's a statutory decision. So, so if the court really gets way out ahead of Congress, um, then Congress can just overrule the court in a statutory case. It's a little bit different that way than in a constitutional case. But, but here, I don't think that the court did get way out ahead of popular opinion. I think they actually caught up with popular opinion.
1: Well, now that's interesting. This kind of gets to the the second part of what I wanted to ask you about, and you know, leading to how you'd argue eventually. Uh, and that is, is that if we take that view, effectively, the the court becomes the fixer of the inherent institutional issues of Congress. Which I mean it kind of begs the question: What? I mean, Congress gets a lot of uh, uh, flack leveled at it. I think a lot of times on this show that we probably take a pretty positive view of Congress compared yeah. to the. To the popular view uh, But this would then kind of indicate Well look, Congress can't get done What it's supposed to do And so the courts is gonna ha- are going to have to step in In some way and be activists uh, you know, We'll just use that loosely defined at the moment uh, Otherwise There will become a disconnect Between what people want And what Congress is willing to do But I mean, if, if that's ultimately true In a major way all the time it doesn't, is, Isn't that a Critique of, uh, of the, our, our primary democratic institution. And, and wouldn't that suggest there's a, a fundamental problem with Congress? In other words, if you have to think about the court as a fixer of the problems of Congress, uh, doesn't that, is, isn't that fundamentally a problem with Congress?
0: Yeah, I think it is, but I, I don't think it's all the time, right? So I think, I think cases like the Bostock case, um, you know, you have them every year, um, but not that many of them uh so you know i think the the overwhelming um uh, majority of the legislating is being done well by congress and actually also by administrative agencies so there's there's the third branch here which also which we're going to well. get to so, yeah, we're going to yeah, get yeah. to in a
1: second story second, as a yeah, matter of fact yeah. so so so
0: i mean really all all three branches have a role in constructing the law um but i think it's an appropriate judicial role to try to um keep principles that congress has already enacted um, uh, uh, updated to apply to contemporary applications, and I, I really would only draw the line when um, when the, what the courts doing is really trying to go against the principles that Congress already enacted. And I, I don't I don't see that in the Bostock case, but I do see that in a lot of textualist cases. So I, I, I think, um, yeah, I think I think that's kind of that i think if there's a partnership in constructing the laws that goes between all three branches including the executive branch which promulgates a lot of regulations um, that i think that's part of the judicial role is to to update interpretation of existing statutes in ways that are faithful to the core meanings of those existing statutes but that that apply them to new applications
1: yes yeah, i i think where you're going to find some more flack on that front you know, as you get away from thinking about it in just purely uh, judicial interpretation terms is that individuals are going to say, well, yeah, that's your particular uh, principles that you're reading and you're reading into it, not necessarily, uh, you know, as you put it, kind of their best version of it. But it sounds like then, though, that your your word, I mean, like, look, the purpose of this did not encompass um, sexual identity, for example, but that that's the clear underlying principle, and therefore today we need to rule in this way to. Uh, apply Title VII to these circumstances in 2020. Am I am I, am I giving you yeah. a good read there? Is that
0: yeah? That, that, that's what I truly believe, and that's what I think. Um, uh, probably the four Democratic justices on the court also truly believe, but they didn't they didn't write an opinion like that because I think they didn't want to shatter um, the majority. There was a six justice majority for an outcome that they wanted, and they were willing to go along with them. Gorsuch's really, um, really aggressive textualist approach where, you know, by, by everybody's understanding, I think, he's interpreting the text um, to be contrary to the actual uh, understanding and meaning of the, the Congress that enacted it. Um, but, but I think that's what textualism is all about.
1: So now I want to ask you just kind of a quick question before we move on to our next story about this, though, because you, you mean you're interpreting the idea here that they don't write so as to have the majority. But there's also an argument to be made that it appears that some of the liberals are, in fact, kinds of textualists. Aren't we all textualists now, as I understand?
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's been said. And I think, um, yeah, Breyer has said that and Kagan has said that. But I don't I think they just have to, um, you know, use the the methods that um, can 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 get a majority on the court sometimes. But uh, I think textualism would recede in the court if if there were if there weren't. Five Republican justices. You know, I think it's Democrats can use it. And actually, like one of the great textualists and one of the great originalists uh, before Scalia even was Justice William Brennan, who was one of the most um, liberal justices that ever sat on the court. And he was really the the founder of originalism. um, And he tended to use originalism to reach uh, very liberal results. So um, these you know these tools can be deployed by um, either either side. And and uh, and I think for for the minority side on the court, they pretty much have to be willing to wield the tools that the majority says are the legitimate tools. But that's sort of all I think about that.
1: Well, why don't we turn to another case, the DACA case? But before that, we got a quick break. Okay, so, Ken, we just got done chatting about Title VII and the Civil Rights Act. And a lot of conversation about uh, interpretation. And I don't, I don't think we're going to veer too far. <laughs> great, great. Uh, because on Thursday, the United States uh, State Supreme Court blocked the Trump administration from ending the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, commonly known as DACA. Uh, and so just for a little bit of background here, DACA comes from a memorandum from the Department of Homeland Security uh, during the Obama administration. In it, it allowed uh, unauthorized aliens who arrived in the U.S. Uh, as children potentially to apply for two-year forbearance from removal, and further, it granted the ability of them to have work authorizations uh, and other various federal benefits. <clears throat> now, what happens is is that the Trump administration decided it was time to end DACA, <clears throat> and so uh, they did so. Now, the plaintiffs in the case have argued that the way that DACA was ended. Uh, violated the Administrative Procedures Act, APA. And it also violated the Due Process Clause. And that the reasoning for ending DACA uh, was that government was arguing it was illegal. And this is where I think it kind of gets into the the fascinating policy weeds, uh, because Trump isn't just, the Trump administration is not rescinding it so much as they're rescinding it on the grounds that DACA in the first instance was in fact illegal when the Obama administration, through Homeland Security, um, issued it. Uh, And so because of that, uh, it is a potential, uh, quote, violation of the APA, according to Chief Justice uh, John Roberts. Uh, Effectively, what he's saying is the Trump administration has the power to rescind policy, uh, but that in this particular case, it's, quote, arbitrary and capricious, end quote. And that arbitrary and capricious manner is what makes it violate the APA. So in other words, it is blo- the court has blocked this largely because of what you might call administrative bungling. Uh, because the program was enacted by President Obama and not by legislation, it means that future presidents, of course, could undo it. So Ken, I know a lot of people are celebrating the decision right now, but my reading is, of the court's decision is that Trump could still very easily and will in DACA. As a matter of fact, on Friday, he even mentioned in Twitter. Uh, that that's what they're going to be doing shortly. So take us a little bit into the contours of this case uh, and maybe make a prediction on whether you think a revised ending of DACA might happen meeting the outline of the majority opinion. And and why do you think the Trump administration took this particular legal route in the first place? You talked about this earlier in the show. Uh, Why not just make it a policy move? Why push for the illegality?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of great questions there. So, um, uh, and actually, one, the second question, the last question you asked about why I've been researching all day, so I can't wait to start talking about it. So, yeah, the decision, um, you know, when when Obama um, uh, adopted DACA, um, uh, DACA is not part of the immigration statutes. So the, the main way that um, Obama did adopt it was by the, the president's um, inherent authority to set enforcement priorities. And the idea would be, well, um, there's there's 10 to 12 million people in the United States who are deportable aliens, and there's, there's not enough staff in the immigration authorities to deport 10 to 12 million people all at once, so they have to set priorities. And so within who that framework- Who goes first, yeah. Who goes first, yeah. So President Obama, by executive order, said, um, the, essentially the dreamers, um, children who are brought here as children um, and who've never gotten in any trouble while they were here, will be the lowest um, enforcement priority. So you've got to deport the other 10 or 11 million people first before you get around to trying to deport the, the DACA um, uh, uh, recipients. So that was what the Obama order said. So it's really a, a, a prioritization of enforcement resources. And, the, so, and
1: the, I think it's a big deal because I think a lot of people think that DACA is a citizenship when it's not.
0: It's not. It's just a, It's just a. Um, it's a, it's a. It's just a. An executive order saying that although the, the Dreamers are in fact undocumented aliens who don't even have a path to citizenship and who are deportable, um, it's just that deporting them will be the very lowest uh, enforcement priority of uh, immigration authorities. So that that's all that the DACA order ever said. Um, and certainly, if, if Congress passes uh, statutes that that make 12 million people deportable and doesn't pass statutes that provide enough um, enforcement um, uh, um, resources to actually deport uh, 12 million people, then it's, um, it's inherent that there's gonna have to be some executive prioritization of enforcement resources. So I, I think the DACA order under kind of standard administrative law principles was fairly clearly legal. Um, it would be sort of impossible not to set some enforcement priorities. Um, now, there had been a, a, a case in Texas um, during the Obama administration where a federal district judge found that it was illegal, um, but that ended up getting reversed at the, at the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. So, um, so there, there's some, some uh, you know, reasonable basis to think that the, the order was legal. Um, but on the other hand, um, because it was President Obama's uh, enforcement priorities, certainly president trump doesn't have to have the same enforcement priorities and if he would have just um yeah if he would have just said i'm i'm changing the enforcement priorities um he would have won the case nine nothing uh but i think that I've, I've found two reasons why he he might not have done it that way and, and i think all, this is kind
1: of the heart yeah. like why why the ila- illegality so, so there's two okay yeah. continue
0: yeah so, so i think one reason um which seemed um you know, w- w- seemed possible for a long time, is that Trump had politically committed himself to the idea that what Obama did was illegal. That that was his political rhetoric in the in the 2016 campaign. Um, it, that had been actually consistent with political rhetoric from a lot of other Republicans as well. Um, that, that the that the that the that President Obama had exceeded his statutory authority by implementing DACA. Um, that it was just an illegal act. And that therefore, um, uh, the president could, could stop the um, executive branch from continuing to engage in illegality um, without having to give any more reason than that for the change, just say what we were doing was illegal, What we're now we're gonna comply with the law. Um, so, so I think that the, part of the reason that Trump did that was it was, it was it was a direct reflection of the political rhetoric that I think he'd been engaging in all along. Um, but the other reason that I think is, is turning out to possibly also be true and is less visible um, has to do with who who was the acting secretary of homeland security at the time and what was she willing to sign her name to um so it was a it was a woman named elaine duke um she she had been she was a trump appointee she had been um, appointed as deputy secretary of the department of homeland security uh because john general kelly had been um uh um uh, appointed by by trump and and confirmed by the senate as um secretary of homeland security so when Kelly um, was then called to the White House to become Trump's uh, uh, chief of staff, um, then that meant that the deputy secretary of Homeland Security became the acting secretary of Homeland Security. So formally, in administrative law, it's it's the head of the relevant administrative agency that has to sign off on the executive orders. It's not the president that does that. So, so it was really up to um, Elaine Duke. She was told by President Trump, you know, we're rescinding DACA and you have to sign an order rescinding uh, DACA. Um, and some of, the, some of the reporting that I was reading um, in the New York Times and the Washington Post and other places is saying that she was um, willing to do as told and uh, issue an executive order that rescinded DACA, um, but she was really unwilling to put her own name to any of the rhetoric um, from the White House that she perceived as overly racist, right? So that the idea, you know, well, be, because these students are all criminals and rapists and things like that, they're not such good people, we need to, we need to end DACA. Um, you know, that was the way people like Stephen Miller were talking um, in the White House and, and Steve Bannon, um, but apparently um, uh, Elaine Duke just would not sign her name to an order like that. So that when she did sign the order that came out of Homeland Security, uh, her stated justification in the order was that um, DACA was illegal all along, but she didn't want to give any of the other justifications because she felt they were too racist and she didn't want to be associated with those justifications. So once once she signed that order, then that committed... The, the agency can only defend its actions on the grounds that are actually given in the order. So um, if right, you, can't, grounds, you can't yeah, use other
1: conversation uh, about uh, it. Other, it, it.
0: Yeah, yeah. right. So, so once she signed an order that said, well, we're rescinding DACA, because the, it was illegal, the president didn't have statutory authority to implement it. We need to end it so that we stop engaging in ongoing enforcement of an illegal order. Um, that was the only justification she wrote in the order. So, some say because that's the only one that she was comfortable with, and she she wasn't comfortable with the other ones. But then that restricted what they could argue in the courts as well. So I think both of those, um, uh, um, both of those types of uh, conjectures have been made, some that Trump wanted to do it to align the um, The the Homeland Security order with his own rhetoric, or some that um, he was actually forced over a barrel into that by uh, Elaine Duke because she wouldn't sign her name to orders that went uh, beyond that. But that did prove to be very problematic because when it came to the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, along with the four Democrats, said, well, DACA actually is legal. So, if you say you're rescinding it because it's illegal, can't do it. Right, that. That's just it's just an incorrect legal argument. Um, and you could you could rescind it on on policy reasons, um, but then you have to actually show that you considered um, all aspects of the, the policy debate according they, to the they, APA. According to the APA, right? And the, and the, and the, and that the, the the Homeland Security never considered any aspects of the policy debate. Now, I I think that it's not going to be super easy for Trump to um, quickly um, redo this. Um, during this term, you know he probably will be able to if he gets a second term but the you know right now he 's up against the fact that he 's got only six months left in office um, and I think if you read the Roberts opinion carefully, there's some very serious questions that Roberts articulates um, that that he says need to be addressed, and these would be questions like you know what 's going to happen to the u um, s citizen family members of the DACA recipients? Um, how are they going to be impacted by deportation of their their close relatives? What's going to happen to the employers that are currently employing DACA recipients? Um, and, and he's saying, you know, you need to think about this. You need to collect data about this. You need to explain why um, um, the 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 harm that would be caused by deporting these people um, is outweighed by the benefits of deporting these people. And and what what is the benefit of deporting these people? And and they would have to do a public notice and comment proceeding. Where the public could file comments on all that, which they would have to address. So I, I, I don't really think they can get that done in six months. So I, I don't think they can meet the standard um, of, of, of reasoned um, uh, analysis that Chief Justice Roberts um, said that the, the agency should be held to um, unless they've got at least a year or two of time to do it. And so I think that would depend on um, Trump getting reelected.
1: Now, that, and that's I'm glad you kind of put, bring us there because that brings us to the policy side. And I mean, one of the things is I was I was reading the opinion that it seemed to me in and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but Robert's opinions seemed to be a little bit reminiscent of the genre of faculty member responding to a to a to a, a, a middling student paper.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think or or not even middling. I'd say to a near failing student <laughs> paper. Right? I mean, like yeah, this I, is
1: bad. I, Here's what you should have done. Yeah, uh, and kind of outlining what it what, what a B or an A paper would have looked like, because I, I felt like that. And I, I have read more than a few uh, uh, Supreme Court opinions. It seemed a little unusual to me in that tone, and I wondered if you agreed with that reading. Like, it, it doesn't seem as often the court takes. Uh, again, I'm going to say that kind of genre. <laughs>
0: well. You know, it's, it's unique to administrative law cases because of the um, Administrative Procedure Act, which does require um, agencies to engage in reasoned deliberation, to consider um, all important aspects of the problem and all important facts relative to the problem, um, and, and to avoid um, arbitrary, capricious decision making. So th- th- those kinds of particular requirements that apply when administrative agencies promulgate regulations um, on areas that are within agency discretion. Um, it's not so uncommon for courts to grade their papers that harshly in that particular <laughs> kind of case. It, it, it would be more uncommon in other kinds of cases. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, now, on on the, on the policy note, it is, when I, when I see this as being, and, and, and again, this might be a, a stretch, have you have you considered the possibility that the reason for putting it this way is a chance to again campaign on Supreme Court justices?
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think the Republicans don't really realize that their best friend on the court is John Roberts because I think he um, the the kinds of opinions that 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 um, that, that Republicans have really. Um, uh, um, criticized him for, including this one, including his opinion in the Affordable Care Act or or, or, um, maybe the census case, although that's a little bit trickier, I think, is, you know, these are are, um, issues that actually um, allow the the Republicans to go into the next election uh, not having done something terribly unpopular, right? And I I think this is just another one of those, right? Like he actually saved the Republicans from having to um, uh, um, be held uh, liable by the electorate For ending DACA, which um, uh, the electorate overwhelmingly supports, and so I think he really punted this out back past the uh, election, Um, and uh, um, I think to the benefit of uh, of Republicans. But um, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're asking. But but that's is that is that no, yeah, that that is
1: that is that is because. I mean, I guess this week I was a little bit. I'm just going to say off put by those who were celebrating the decision, not because I uh, am opposed to the decision. As a matter of fact, as listeners of the show know, I'm for more, not less immigration. Uh, But I I think the 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 view right now is that, well, DACA is now therefore safe. And this isn't going to happen. And these individuals are just, you know, they're going to eventually be citizens. Uh, but really, all this does is it just punts the ultimate policy yeah. question is, is, what do we do with these who were children and are now my age brought into the U.S. Yeah. illegally, but have spent their whole lives here? Um, as a matter of fact, there was a, a, an art, an opinion piece in Newsweek uh, by Marissa Mol, uh, Molina, uh, a really um, eloquent little piece. Uh, are arguing that, look, it's not time to be celebrating because what we still need is, despite the court's opinion, Congress still is going to have to act if they want to ensure stability for DREAMers. And No more stability has occurred for them. And that it it appears unlikely that the Senate is going to move forward with any kind of legislation. The House has. uh, The Senate has not. It's unlikely to do so, especially, as you note, we have six months until uh, uh, an election. I don't think it's likely they're going to want to take this up. And this kind of gets back to what we ended um, the, the last conversation about is, is this, again, the court stepping into the legislative void?
0: Yeah, but here they didn't step very far into it, no. um, right? Because here they, they really just um, pushed back a decision until after the election, and they, they maintain the status quo right now. So, you know, unlike in the Bostock decision, which made a big change to the status quo, you know, last week. Employers could discriminate against gay and transgender people. This week they can't. Um, with DACA, you know, all they do is preserve the status quo until after the election. And the, the status quo is that the um, the, the dreamers are um, not in danger of immediate deportation, um, but they are classified formally as deportable aliens with no path to citizenship. Um, so so that just really just says you've got another year or so, and we'll see how the election shakes out. And, and, you know, maybe Congress will actually create a, a path to citizenship or permanent residency, um, or maybe President Trump will get reelected and he'll actually properly um, rescind DACA and they'll all be deported. Um, uh, but, but I think all they really did is, is punt that back to, back to one more election, which I see as a fairly pro-democratic um, uh, holding in that sense, right? That the legislature is gridlocked right now, so there's not going to be changes in the status quo until there's one more chance for the legislature to not be gridlocked.
1: But, I mean, it, Democrats, and, and this is one of the ones that I will hold, you know, they had an opportunity to pass legislation to deal with DACA do- and did not. And uh, do you think it's likely that they're actually going to take that up? I, I, it, it, for me, it is longstanding frustrating that Congress has been unwilling to permanently settle the question. Of individuals brought here as children. I mean, put aside the larger, bigger question about immigration for a minute, but just the children who were here, who who were here.
0: Well, I mean, d- Democrats have legislated. I mean, the House just passed another bill on that. But they I did. think the, yeah, I think the the, the I, I would say that the holdup has been that um, that that's that the the docket bill, which is is very popular with the whole public. um, It was really Republicans that tried to. Tie it to a lot of other things that were very unpalatable to Democrats, including massive funding for the wall on the Mexican border, um, as as the cost of getting the the DACA bill through. So um, Democrats have certainly voted again and again for a clean bill on DACA, and um, you know, Republicans. I think a lot of Republicans voted for it also. So I think I think even the Republicans or enough Republicans might vote for a clean DACA bill if one could come up for a vote in the Senate. Uh, McConnell doesn't seem to want to let a clean DACA bill come up uh, in the Senate. But but if he if he did, I, I, I'm not sure it wouldn't pass.
1: Well, we, we've talked about this on the show, too, before uh, the inherent bias uh, against immigrants in the United States and especially um, children. But I think we're going to probably need to pause there, Ken, uh, to move on to uh, our next story, which is going to be another, I mean, this week has been full of big things. On Tuesday, Bolton's inside tell-all book, The Room Where It Happened, is set to come out. Uh, And this this week, uh, there have been leaks of the content of the book. And really, there's kind of two stories in this one story. One, of course, is the leaked content of the book and President Trump's response to that content. Uh, and then the second, which is kind of going along with our theme for this week, uh, which is litigation, uh, is the ongoing litigation from the Justice Department to stop the publication of the book uh, due to allegedly including classified information. And so I really, I want to start there with the, uh, the litigation. So on Friday, there was a nearly two-hour hearing uh, in front of a federal judge to argue to delay or stop pub- publication of the book on this coming Tuesday. Uh, the headlines for all these stories uh, come from uh, Judge Royce Lambert, who had commented, quote, it certainly looks difficult to me about what I can do about all those books all over the country, end quote. And so the legal issue is that the Justice Department has allegedly continued to alter what is or is not classified, uh, and that while Bolton was trying to work with National Security Council reviewer uh, Ellen Knight, that that became impossible. Now, the problem, of course, is that Bolton has not received formal approval to publish his book, and as he has even put it himself, has, quote, walked away, end quote, from the review process. So in short, Bolton has not waited for an official letter from the administration clear him to publish and moved forward as a result of what he saw as uh, obstruction. As a matter of fact, the judge asked him why he didn't bring a, a court case when that happened. Kind of into this mix has been the looming threat from President Trump that there could also be a criminal case. Uh, he noted, quote, that there is a, quote, very strong criminal problem. If he, meaning Bolton, published the book, uh, I will consider every conversation with me as president to be highly classified, end quote. So we are seeing both a civil and potentially a legal case, although I think that's less likely, against Bolton. So, Ken, what do you think? Bolton never receives approval does that put him on shaky ground? And what about this process um, with uh, National Security Council uh, reviewer Ellen Knight, who keeps saying, yes, now, no, yes, now, no, on the same issue? So let's start with the litigation side.
0: Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> there's not going to be a criminal prosecution, right? I mean, Trump always <laughs> says that. I'm still waiting for Andrew McCabe to be prosecuted and for uh, Lisa Page and uh, you know, all, all these people that he always says he's going to prosecute. It's, a, it's always bull and this is Bull. Um, the, uh, the civil issue, um, it actually took, you know, the headlines started coming out a couple days ago that, that, that Trump was going to sue to block publication of this book. And it actually took him until last night to get around to coming up with a legal theory by which he could sue to block um, uh, publication of the book. And it's a pretty flimsy one. Um, the, the main legal theory in the Justice Department's case um, is that uh, Bolton himself, signed um a, a contract with um, with with the government where he agreed to submit um, uh, books that he would publish for classification review before they get published. Um, now his publisher never signed that contract. that's only Bolton that signed that contract. The publisher has the book, and they they have every right to publish it um, even if Bolton himself is violating his own um, uh, um, non-disclosure agreement. And, and there there's 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 really no legal theory I think that that would make that um, bind his agreements binding on on the publisher they never sign those agreements the closest thing there is to a legal theory um, is that some of the stuff in the book uh, v- disclosure of it would also violate the National Security Act not not just the non-disclosure agreement but that it's it's classified information that can't be published under the National Security Act. I think the, the problem with that theory is, um, again, a even if it's true, it wouldn't be a basis for stopping publication of the book by the publisher. The Supreme Court has plenty of precedents on that. Uh, most famously, the, the Pentagon Papers case from the Vietnam War era, where it's absolutely clear that even if um, in, information that's being published is classified um, and publication would violate the National Security Act, uh, there can't be a prior restraint against publication, um, but also in this case, I think there's very good reason to believe that th- there's no information in the book that violates the National Security Act, because um, uh, Bolton was pursuing this on two tracks. One is that he was pursuing it through the agency, and as as I understand it, every civil servant um, in the agency who vetted the book um, said that it was okay to go, and that it was um, those decisions were ultimately overruled by. Political appointees. I think a guy named Ellis was the one, um, who, Michael Ellis, um, who himself had never actually even taken training in in the classification rules under the National Security Act. So he he had no real basis for even knowing um, what 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 kinds of content would actually violate the National Security Act, and he overruled decisions by all the civil servants whose whose job is to know that stuff. Um, the other thing is that Bolton separately vetted this with. Um, People who are retirees and former people in the agency whose job had been doing this kind of vetting. And, and they all swore out affidavits saying that um, there's nothing in here that violates the National Security Act. So I, I really can't see any basis for, for finding, um, th- th- for suspecting that when Judge Lamberth reviews the book in camera, which he is going to do now, um, that he would find any violations of the National Security Act, um, or that he would um, issue a prior restraint against publication, even if he did. I think the one and only legal claim in here that's real, um, which wouldn't stop publication, would be that um, if, 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 if Bolton breached his contract with the government, um, and then he makes a lot of royalties from selling the book, uh, he might have to disgorge his royalties and pay them up to the government as, as damages. Um, but, but but I think that's about the most that a court would possibly do um, in, in favor, in terms of ruling in, in favor of the Justice Department on, on any of their claims.
1: So now I, I'm glad that you stopped there because money has been thrown around as an issue about this on the content side as well, uh, especially since that might, in fact, be the most pertinent real uh, legal argument, because yeah. the revelations from the book are also, I think, worth pursuing a little bit here. Uh, now, apparently, according to the New York Times, it's kind of a boring book with just kind of moments uh, sprinkled <laughs> throughout, like, what, what, you know? Uh, but what Bolton argues, and this is what I wanted to kind of focus on from it, was that the House impeachment inquiry uh, should have investigated President Trump over more than just Ukraine. As a matter of fact, concerning the Ukraine issue, Bolton offers firsthand evidence uh, that President Trump... Linked his, susp- uh, his suspension of 391 million in security aid for Ukraine to his demands that Ukraine publicly announce investigation into wrongdoings um, by Democrats, including Biden. Uh, but he- he's going to argue that uh, they needed to look into other issues, as he puts it, quote, to in effect give personal favors to dictators he liked. End quote. And most strongly says that uh, quote, he is a pattern looked like obstruction of justice as a way of life end quote. Um, I mean, that's, some, that's some harsh uh, criticisms. And as a result of this, though, uh, Bolton is receiving some harsh criticism of his own. Democrats are basically arguing, like, look, where were you during the impeachment? Why, why wait until you're going to make a bunch of money on your book uh, instead of coming forward and forcing us to make you testify? So much so that the epilogue to his book, as we can understand it, uh, Bolton tries to preemptively shield himself from that line of attack, arguing that he wanted to wait to see if a judge would order his former deputy to testify over White House objections. Um, because White, uh, House Democrats opted to move the case forward uh, too quickly, it is effectively their fault. In other words, uh, Bolton is blaming House Democrats for being in a rush. Otherwise, he would have gladly participated uh, in, in impeachment hearings in a bigger way. Um, I I kind of find that a little. I'm just gonna say I find that a little bit disgusting. His epilogue, from what I've read uh, of the excerpts of it. What do you think about the content coming forward here? And I mean, is is this just a patent? I mean, what do you think about this? Let's just start there, Ken. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I, you know, of course, I haven't read the book. I've only I did read The New York Times review of the book. And uh, the biggest thing that jumped out at me from that review is um, along the lines of what you just said, is that I think one of the specific allegations is that that Trump was actively inviting China to try to intervene in our election on his behalf. And and to uh, and he was offering them very favorable trade treatment um, if they would, but not if they wouldn't. Right. And that um, was
1: just one of many dictators that he's <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, that was just the one yeah. specific we have so far.
0: Yeah. On the issue of why Bolton didn't say this earlier, I blame him, but I also do blame the House Democrats a little bit, not for rushing too fast. I don't think they rushed too fast, but I think they should have subpoenaed him. And, uh, um, and I, uh, you know, he didn't he didn't. I think Bolton um, did not want um, to seem as though he was just running to the House Democrats out of um, wanting to take vengeance against Trump. But I, but I think he, he did not really resist subpoenas. The subpoenas didn't come. And, uh, um, and I, I don't know why. I think, I think if the House Democrats would have subpoenaed him earlier, possibly he would have gone in there. Um, if the, uh, if the, they, they just kept asking him to uh, voluntarily testify. And you know I think he should have, but I also think they should have subpoenaed him. So I think there's a little blame to go around on both sides there.
1: Now, you know this is always the, the what-if game and you can only play so much time. Do you think Bolton's comments, had he put them into the record in the House, would have had any bearing on the ultimate outcome? In other words, do you think it could have swayed uh, two more Republicans uh, to have joined in the Senate?
0: You know, well, remember, you need a two thirds vote in the Senate. So it, it certainly couldn't have affected the outcome. Right. But the, I guess there'd be some some rhetorical. Um, no, I was uh, talking
1: about because we needed two votes to get additional um, oh, oh, to
0: get to get the subpoena, to get yeah. additional
1: subpoenas. And so do you yeah. think had you had Bolton, could we have had the two votes not to convict, uh, yeah. but to have continued that process because you would have had enough Republican defectors uh, to make that uh, move forward?
0: Maybe I mean I guess we're really specifically talking here about Murkowski, uh, Collins. Um, there was Romney. Um, we needed one more, maybe. Um, you know I don't know. I don't know who, who would have been the one more.
1: I mean that's a good question. I...
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, why I, I, I
1: didn't have a good yeah. answer. That's why I asked you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'm going to say probably not. I don't. I don't know that there was that 51st vote. To uh, um, actually have a full-blown trial in the Senate, even if even if uh, Bolton's revelations had come out earlier, although you know that's all we're that we're all we're just guessing. And I I do wish that Bolton's revelations had come out earlier, because then you know even even if there's only a ten percent or twenty percent chance that that would have led to a full-blown trial in the Senate, um, I, w- I would have liked to have the chance to to you know see how that ten or twenty percent chance worked out.
1: I can't disagree. What I will say, though, is is that we have kind of running low on time. We've had a, a really – this has been – I think we might need to label this the Supreme Court Week. <laughs> I mean, that's just what
0: – I'm yeah, sure you hated that. I'm a, you know, I'm, a law, I'm a law professor, so I'm in my wheelhouse when we're talking about this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> uh, but
1: what, I, what we want to do is we kind of close is what we kind of do every week, which is what we've been reading. Uh, and so Ken, you, you've set, sent us all down some pretty cool rabbit holes that generally deal with like spies and kind of cool stuff. So I'm going to let you go first. Cause I feel like you generally have the, you know, the, the cooler, what you've been reading thing. So what, what have you been engaging with? This doesn't have to be reading. Of course. What, what have you been yep, engaging right,
0: with? I'm going to ha- I'm going to have to admit, after talking about the espionage books I was reading last time, I haven't yet picked up another pleasure reading book. But I, I will recommend. Uh, I've been watching a little television, so maybe our, maybe our listeners like that. And uh, the, the show that I've kind of been binge watching lately, it's, it's. I'm probably ten years late. These show, it's not a current show, but it's a show called Inspector Lewis which is a British detective series. It's actually a spinoff from an earlier British detective series called uh, Inspector Morse. Um, it's set in Oxford, England. Um, every episode has very complex plots, multiple murders, and usually the professors end up being behind it all. The villains are usually professors <laughs> at Oxford. So I've been, uh, I've been enjoying watching the, uh, the that series quite a bit. Well, that's fun.
1: Uh the, the bit I went, you know, normally i been doing kind of what you're doing, right, which is the, uh, the more popular thing. But this week, well, the thing that kind of caught my eye was there was an article in Time. I'll out myself. I'm a subscriber to uh, Apple Plus, and so I'm always kind of making the big newspaper and magazine uh, rounds each week. Uh, and they had a piece uh, from uh, looking at a guy named Peter Turchin who had actually a decade ago predicted uh, civil unrest in the United States in 2020 based on some kind of cool mathematical models. Uh, and his, uh, paper is actually freely available in nature, which also kind of sent me scratching my head because nature doesn't usually do a lot of kind of social sciencey, uh, uh, research. Uh, but you know, in this particular case they had, uh, and so I'm actually going to include for listeners both the Times article that first got me in, uh, interested in it uh, and then also the actual link uh, to the Turchin piece uh, in Nature itself, if you are so interested in taking a look at the, lar- at least the abstract or maybe the larger uh, uh, take on well, the, the patterns and cyclical nature of things like unrest and instability. I think a lot of times I, I find this always Uh, useful, especially for students, because I think that we often assume that whatever's happening is kind of unpredictable in the moment, Uh, but really there's kind of institutional and structural reasons why life plays out the way it does. That's why we have social sciences, Uh, and uh, I know why we get kind of uh, um, pushed around sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I think we do have something meaningful to offer. Uh, So uh, Turchin's uh, uh, article on political instability uh, in nature. So. That's what I've been doing this week. Well, anyway, Ken, it's been a lot of fun doing the show with you.
0: Yeah, it's been a great show.
1: Thank you for listening to The Politics Guys. All of the hosts, myself included, love working on the show. It truly is a labor of love. And to make it possible, it takes the support of amazing listeners like you. One of the ways you can help the show is by subscribing to The Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. So does sharing episodes with your friends, your family, and your other social media contacts. Word of mouth advertising is undoubtedly the best, and we certainly appreciate it each and every time you at The Politics Guys. But we also need your support. One of the great things about being a supporter, uh, a monetary supporter, is you're going to get access to a supporters-only content, and that includes our full-length Supporters Only Wednesday show. If you want to become a supporter or just want to check out more of the benefits of supporting The Politics Guys, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can head to politicsguys.com slash support. Join me and Ken again on Wednesday leading a story about Albuquerque, New Mexico by heading to Patreon.comslash politicsguys. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. As a matter of fact, We'll be taking up a bunch of listener question on the Wednesday show. So if you become a supporter, you can join me and Ken again on Wednesday and listen to a bunch of individuals who sent us the comments at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our newly formed Reddit at Bipartisan Politics. And we have a bunch of questions coming from there again, and I've really enjoyed the Reddit Bipartisan Politics. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorf. We'll be back with a new bonus show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.